Welcome to this Making Connections News edition of Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. On February 12th, more than 20 Eastern Kentucky school superintendents representing the Kentucky Valley Educational Cooperative, or KVEC, presented legislators with a region's way forward, a call-to-action position paper urging the state leaders to support a set of research-based solutions and policy recommendations in order to better serve disadvantaged rural students and improve the economy in Appalachian, Kentucky. I visited the KVEC office in Hazard to speak with Executive Director Jeff Hawkins and staff members Desi Bowling and Bernadette Carpenter to learn about the report's findings. KVEC has recently completed a U.S. Department of Education grant that the cooperative used to implement a myriad of innovative educational approaches to teaching and learning. Before we go to the interview, here is a January 2018 story about this work from the Ohio Valley Resource. A rural school collective in eastern Kentucky has received a multi-million dollar extension of a U.S. Department of Education grant. As Benny Becker reports in the series Changing Course, the federal money helps offset some chronic problems with school funding. Last year, Chloe Watson and four teammates from South Floyd Middle School won the top prize at a regional engineering competition. Our elementary school, it gets flooded almost every year. We've designed uh, portable flood levees, plastic bins that will be filled with a mixture of sand and water. That's Watson's teammate, Preston Crace. He told me the project made school feel more meaningful. You feel as a kid the amount you're able to impact society around you is a little bit limited. And this is one of the best ways I've ever found to do some impact. Kelsey Tackett is one of the teachers who helped to launch the engineering team. She says the project wouldn't have been possible without grant funding. Absolutely not. Uh, Being able to use money to just like fund a project that a student completely comes up with would be extremely difficult. Tackett was able to buy supplies thanks to money from the Kentucky Valley Educational Cooperative, a collective of 22 school districts across the coal fields of eastern Kentucky. Back in 2013, the cooperative won a $30 million federal grant. That funding was set to end with this school year, but on January 2nd, the cooperative was granted money for an extra year. This allows us to work towards sustainability of the innovation at a classroom level and a systemic approach to advancing education within the region. That's Jeff Hawkins. He's the cooperative's director, and he says that the challenge of funding innovation in rural schools is one that's not new and not getting easier. I think it's even more of a concern now than it was 27 years ago. Edward Cornett was the cooperative's founding director. About 27 years ago, he joined with other school administrators to sue the state of Kentucky. They argued that the huge difference in funding between poor and wealthy school districts violated the state's constitution. The lawsuit was decided in their favor and that equalized the funding for education tremendously. But since that time, there's been no significant additional investment. So local school districts are having to increase local taxes. But in low-wealth districts like eastern Kentucky, the resources are not there. That's Bridget Blom-Ramsey. She's the director of the Pritchard Committee, a nonprofit that's been advocating for Kentucky schools since the early 80s. She says Kentucky isn't alone in dealing with this challenge. If the state relies on local districts to primarily support education, we're going to continue to leave too many students in rural America behind. Ramsey singled out Floyd County, home to the prize-winning engineering team. She says it's an example of what's possible when schools are adequately funded. At one time, was possibly going to be taken over by the state because of poor student outcomes. And they are now one of the top performing districts in Kentucky with high expectations and the right support students can achieve at the highest levels. The schools in the KVEC region are among the highest performing in Kentucky, but that is often not the perception of state leaders or even parents. At the KVEC office, I asked Jeff Hawkins about KVEC's work to change that story to reflect the reality of the region's educational quality. I think that uh, there are a lot of perceptions about education in eastern Kentucky, some of which are informed, some of which are informed by uh, bias and prejudice that have been around for a long time. Um, Those informed opinions about education that is here um, 
recognize the fact that educators in this region of the state and in others in other places, but this is what we know, are doing a pretty amazing job. Um, they are helping kids to become independent thinkers. They're working with them um, in a thousand different ways to realize the potential that they have, not only to perform well on a standardized test, but to look at their community and work in partnership with their community to solve pervasive challenges that exist, whether that be about healthcare and hacking the opioid crisis or obesity or uh, 3D printing and scanning or drones or whatever it may be, it's appropriate in the community. Unfortunately, uninformed opinions and perceptions about the region um, continue to identify this region as uh, backwards, uh, uninformed, not, um, not um, as less than. And those people who do come here and visit or who engage with our students or our educators in legitimate conversations about learning um, are quite simply amazed. Um, and that's really the, the battle that we choose to fight uh, to change the narrative to one of truth about the region, not just in education, but in uh, all things, um, to provide accurate, fact-based information that is or it comes from here, um, that folks don't come here without understanding and make their own story, but that people here should be telling their story about what they do. Um, and I don't want to go on too long, but I, I would mention that when we really began that ARI work, one of the things that we knew we had to do immediately in, in a just to get short-term wins, was to offer those learning innovation grants that Bernadette spoke of. Um, and the reason that those were critically important, it's a modest amount of money for a teacher or a group of educators to use in their classroom and building to go above and beyond what they would normally have to do. Um, they are research-driven. They clock how they show improvement. Um, but we needed folks here to realize just how really good they were. And in the display of that, twice a year we host a fire summit, Forging Innovation in Rural Education. We broadcast that um, over the web to a national and now international audience and archive all of those presentations. Um, that's important because we need that micro-investment in innovation, and we need the opportunity to prove that that is possible to do at a high level and create a network of people, all of who are, in, are engaged in advancing this work, having a discussion about the power and ability of rural education to tra change the trajectory of an entire community and region. And that work was very important and it dovetails with the need to create a online community that we call the holler.org um, that allows people to see what their colleagues are doing and connect with people who have a similar passion and create learning opportunities for uh, coding or uh, any of 50 different things that are now online and accessible 24 hours a day. Bernadette Carpenter, Instructional Lead, and Desi Bowling, Associate Director, described the importance of the innovation grants that were central to the ARI grant work. And I really think we've done a, a really good job of that, and it's not just us, it's working with the, 
districts also. But uh, we've worked with uh, preschool through 12, and we had learning innovation grants, and they were based on action research. So they had to identify a problem of practice, and we've given grants. That's where it all started with the tiny house. It grew from those innovation grants. And we have those experts of the people who have done the action research, and then they're sharing with folks within their schools, districts, and across districts. And I, and I think that it wasn't just about a project or mm -hmm. an assumption that burned it, and I've talked about multiple times as we did those uh, innovation grants, that it wasn't just about getting iPads for a classroom or, or something like that, but it was about how those iPads, how are you gonna use those iPads to benefit those kids? And so that's what we tried to look at uh, with all of the innovation grants and the work that we've done. I do think that's one thing that's made us really successful with everything we've done, even with all the trainings with the teachers, is it's been, okay, how is this going to benefit the children? How is it going to help them? And that has to be your focus. We didn't put anything in that grant that, uh, that was not doable and that could not be sustained. So that was a focus and then looking at, at how uh, every kid could benefit. And I think with the focus that we've had on looking at, at uh, having student engagement and finding their passion and, and their, having students at the forefront and really uh, couching everything with that has caused a mind shift to where that's what everybody thinks about now. Don't right. I think with the teachers mm -hmm. that it's really changed everything to where they're looking at more uh, what works with each child. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, redesigning the classroom you know i can think of several classrooms where they had like special needs students and they just could not sit still before and just by redesigning that classroom those kids were able to learn so you just had to find what worked and what didn't and we've always said you know try it if it's your problem mm -hmm. of practice try it if it doesn't work that's okay because you're going to learn from that too and then you'll take that and build on that and find what does work and I think we've caused teachers not, to, and, and I think students too, mm -hmm. uh, not to be scared to fail. It's okay. Hawkins says that the recommendations in the Way Forward report were developed from what KVEC districts have learned as they raised up the region's assets and addressed our challenges. During our work in the, the last several years, it has become increasingly more um, we have become increasingly more aware and convinced that in order for a school district to be successful, there needs to be a strong connection to community. And for a community to be successful, the, the opposite is true. Um, what we began to understand was when school and the education process becomes profoundly relevant to a community and its members and community members saw the ability that a school had to affect the quality of life within that community really amazing things could happen so six or eight months ago we embarked on trying to pull our thinking um, as a region together about what we could do to put public education in this rural region at the center of growing the region's community and economic development. In order to do that, we knew that we had to understand the landscape that we were dealing with. So part of a big part of the work, or an early part of the work, was to look at macro data for the region and be able to understand where we were from a regional perspective, not a state perspective and not an individual county or community perspective. The reason we wanted to approach it as a region is because we believe that all of the challenges facing rural community and rural schools can be lumped into two big categories, scale and isolation. So as a region, we have more assets that we can share 
than we do in one in unique individual community. So as we began to parse out all of the data that we could find in its most current form, but we also wanted to look at trend data as far back as we could. For instance, we looked at population data for the region and beginning in 1941, we can track that population across the region, except for a few booms in, in coal uh, extraction, has been on a gradual decline since that time. We began then to look at the year 2000 as a event date, because it was the turn of the century. So between 2000 and 2018, with population, this region has lost, I don't know if it's 10 or 11% of its population. Um, at the same time, the state of Kentucky has increased by 10 or 11%. Um, some of our districts have decreased by 20% during that time frame. Um, and all of the data that we have been able to collect as far as demographics, uh, out-migration, um, unemployment, disability levels, um, obesity, uh, use of um, uh, drugs in warm, one form or another, disconnected youth, um, are on a, on a downward trend. We try to present that data without inflection so that the reader can infer what they choose to look at. Um, one, one interesting bit of data that, that two that I'll mention, um, in November of 2018, uh, just a few months ago, um, the Kentucky Coal uh, Institute identified that there were approximately 3,400 people in all the eastern Kentucky coal fields working in mineral extraction. 2011, there were 14,000. The number of people working in all of eastern Kentucky in coal mining now is about one-third the number of people working at one manufacturing plant in Scott County, Kentucky. Since 2000, Scott County, Kentucky's population has grown by 66%. Our population has decreased over that time. Our student population mirrors the population decrease which means there, is, there are less resources available for kids to learn, fewer teachers can be employed, buildings have to be closed, and students consolidated. Those are issues that we have to figure out how we're gonna work through. Another interesting point for me um, in, in, in this paper is to remember that in 1964, President Johnson declared the war on poverty and at that moment, many safety net programs were started in an effort to move the country out of poverty toward prosperity. In 1964, when that was done, two out of 10 Americans lived at or below the poverty level. 55 years later, in February of this year, three out of 10 residents in KVEX region of Kentucky live at or below the level of poverty. 50% of our children, 18 and under, live at or below the poverty level. It's not that the war uh, is nowhere close to being won. We're losing the war here. And those, those are two data points that stick out for me. Most of the time when we are working with data, we'll only see uh, you know, one data point or, or most two or three. But when you take all of this information together and you have just the facts, I mean, and that's, that's what I've always referred to, it's just kind of like dragnet, it's just the facts, and putting that in there along with uh, maps that really show this work and document, but when you have all of that together, it, it makes you set up and take note, and so I think that having all of this information there together and where people can read it and, uh, and actually come away with uh, all that information about what is happening to this region. Um, it ought to be scary and, and uh, cause some of our politicians and, and our um, 
local leaders to really want to work together to try to provide some um, economic stimulation here in this region. Uh, one of the things that will stick out to people in this, in this document is that we are educating our kids. Our kids are graduating. Uh, we have the highest graduation rate as a, you know, when you look at that regional perspective than the rest of the state. Our kids are graduating with higher numbers of college and career readiness. But if there's no work here for them to do, uh, we're just going to be graduating them for them to move on away from here. And then with that uh, uh, limited local effort that can be made because there are no businesses here, that's going to equate to less local dollars going back into that school system. And uh, so that's going to be um, a damning thing too. In many ways, we are at a tipping point. In, in, in many ways, uh, people have said it uh, repeatedly. Um, that we are comparable to a third world country within the continental boundaries of the United States. And there have been programs and initiatives and efforts within the region for decades to try to uh, move us forward and advance the work that's been going on. But the data speaks what the data speaks. It is what it is. Um, None of that seems to have taken hold and worked. There are isolated pockets within the region where some work is going on, where some seeming progress is being made. Uh, in Pike County, Kentucky, for instance, uh, Pikeville um, is advancing. They are growing as a city in population. However, the county is not. Um, Pike County as a whole, even including the city numbers, has declined over that period of time. So some folks are moving into the city, but um, that, that, that's, that's not enough. We have to look at the, the region and where the kids are. And it, it's become a catchphrase, but it should not matter what zip code a kid lives at for them to have equitable opportunity to be able to graduate from high school ready to go get a job or advance into the next level of their education. Um, in this congressional district, two out of 10 kids, 22, 16 to 22, are disconnected. They are not enrolled in school. They are not working. They're not in any training program. They don't have a connection to be able to figure out what they're going to do to get better at what they can do. So, you know, and, and we don't want to dwell on that. We really try to talk about how do we advance from a position of abundance and not scarcity. We know that's what the data is. Um, someone said the other day, when you're in really deep water, you have three choices. You can sink and drown. You can float and try to hang on, or you can start swimming for sure. We're going to start swimming for sure. And in the past, the work that has gone on has kind of been a little bit in this arena and a little bit there. We believe that public education, K through 12, hopefully including preschool and higher education, need to be at a center point of the ability for a community to reinvent itself and work together and figure out what their renaissance plan will be. And we believe that over the last number of years, KVEC is 50 years old now, but in the last five or six years especially, we have been able to offer proof points through micro investments in innovation by teachers being makers of new curriculum by students, being designers of answers to community challenges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that it is possible for us in this region, in these communities, for that model and those young people and educators to replicate that a similar process to understand, first, what are the assets that we have? if it is that the only thing we've got is the bright minds of young people 
and a willingness to turn the corner, that's enough to begin. But there are other assets that we need to acknowledge and take advantage of. And there are other people we need to pull to the table and not have young people or educators be discounted as doing something else. One KVEC effort has demonstrated the potential to build a new industry in the region when students, teachers, technicians, and businesses work together. The Ohio Valley Resource had this report in June 2018. The coal industry in Appalachia has suffered from disruptive competition, such as hydraulic fracturing for natural gas. Now some students in the economically struggling coal fields hope to take part in another disruptive industry, drone aircraft. As part of the series Changing Course, Benny Becker explains how building and racing drones could help an aerospace industry take off. All right, listen up. I need everyone's attention right here if you're going to be flying. That's Paul Green of the Kentucky Valley Educational Cooperative, which is a partnership of school districts across eastern Kentucky. Today is our second annual drone race, and we've got about 20 schools that will be participating. The Ohio Valley has a long history as a leader in aerospace engineering. Factories in eastern Kentucky produce parts for military and civilian aircraft, and local universities offer strong training programs. Nearby Moorhead State University is known for tiny satellites that students design. We talked to the professors there. Their comment was, well, we get a lot of really strong, academically focused kids. But when we get them in here, they have very minimal skills actually building. And he's like, we build satellites. So we decided to buy kits, all the parts to a drone, not a lot of instructions. And we said, here you go, have at it. Kelsey Tackett's team from South Floyd Elementary is competing for the first time. We were provided a grant and a starter kit. So we've had to solder and piece together and now practice driving so that we can compete in a race later today. I'm Desiree Caudill in the eighth grade from South Floyd Elementary. At the beginning, I kind of felt as if more people had more experience than us. But as we were testing it with the other people, I kind of realized they were in the same boat as us. So that made me feel a lot better about it. It's not really a race here, but just who can get it around the course. Two people made it around the course last year, and he made it around smoother, so he got first place and I got second. Would you mind just saying your names and where you're from? Uh, Franklin Combs in Knott County Central High School. My name's Stone Fawn. I'm from Knott County Central High School. We're here for our second annual drone race. Getting hands-on experience with this stuff where it's kind of... Uh, it's a new field, so... Yeah, a new field um, coming into Kentucky. We're able to... Uh, Put all of our skills we've learned to the test today. Hopefully, we'll come out on top. <laughs> Local leaders hope these students' skills will end up creating new jobs. Chris Ambergie is a Knott County official, one of many working to develop a local drone port, where companies can fly and test drones. Several local drone businesses have already been launched, and the drone port's training events have brought in visitors from across the country. The hope is that it'll become a hub for a growing drone industry. That's going to bring jobs to our region, and uh, you know, with the uh, loss of coal jobs, uh, we need all the jobs in our area that we can get. Do you see a connection between the jobs that you're hoping that would bring and what's happening out here? Absolutely. You know, this is the kids. This is the future. I think for once, rural Appalachia, we're ahead of the game, so to speak, on this. And I see this being the future of our area. So we just, we don't have an economy. There's just no jobs. We can't sustain ourselves around here. And so if this drone port does come in, then I, I might come back. Uh, for me, if that drone port does come around, I most likely will come back and hopefully that drone port will bring in bigger industries and they'll just kind of build up and keep people here. Now, back to the drone racing. As you'll hear, the Floyd County team quickly hits a major snag, but we'll start at the beginning. Up first, Jared Price from Owsley is number one. My name is Jared Price. I'm in 11th grade and I'm from Owsley County. I asked my engineering teacher and our principal if we could start one up and the next year they started a drone club up. You qualify for the next round if you make one complete lap around it, which I just did, so I qualified for the next round. I'll be in the military for about six years, but after I get out, I'm hoping I can get a job at the drone port, working with drones, programming, building them, and you know, just have fun while you're working. My name's Kansas Stumbo, 8th grade from Southwood Elementary. And what's your teacher saying this is something you might be interested in continuing with? Yeah, it's, it's very simple to do. It's just like 
Milton Middle, two wires. We got it. So you can see they wouldn't be seen. I'm Haley Slum. So the first time I flew, it went pretty good. And then, well, it shot up to the roof, hit the roof, came back down, and the battery bounced out of it, and it broke the strap. It is kind of wonky. So we might have to go back and re-solder that part before the race. How's it going? Horrible. <laughs> Horrible? Yeah, we got another bad motor. We tried different motors and still didn't work. So we can't now we're not able to compete. So how do y'all feel? I think you're pretty excited. Would y'all still feel like it was a good experience? Or? Yeah. And do you, you think you'll be take part in something like this next year? Yeah, yeah hopefully. hope so. Do you think you'll win next year? Probably yeah. not. <laughs> I told them I think that uh, us just being here is a really big step. We've never had anyone build drones or do robotics in our school until this year. So this year we happen to have a coding class and we had a drone club. So we're going in the right direction for um, STEM education. And then in first place from Belfry High School is Seth Hatfield. Seth Hatfield. I'm Seth Hatfield. I'm a junior at Belfry High School, and I came in first place today. I'm interested in uh, aviation, and honestly, the, the future of aviation is turning more into drones. And I just feel like it's a good field to maybe look into for the future. Is that in part because you you think it it would give an opportunity to be able to stay around here. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to move away, uh, and I want to stay here, see this area flourish. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Benny Becker in Knott County, Kentucky. Here is Hawkins again talking about the specific recommendations in the Way Forward report to improve education in Appalachian, Kentucky, and other rural areas. In um, the Way Forward that we presented. We also talk about three big nuts, three big elements that are related to public education that we have to because that's our livelihood, that's our work, that is, uh, we, we believe pretty strongly, a critical important of getting better and moving forward. The first element that we talk about is learning resources. How do we acquire and put the right resources in place so that students have the access and opportunities to those things that will create a rich environment for learning. And in that, we know that the funding system for education in Kentucky has been around now uh, going on 30 years. It is an equalization formula that is effective in its implementation. Basically, in layman's terms, that means that first you look at the local effort. What can you contribute? After that, the state kicks in money. If you're a property poor district, you get a higher percentage from the state. If you're a property rich district, you get a lower percentage from the state. But the idea is to equalize funding across the board. Here, most of our districts are what could be identified as property poor. We, there is not a lot of value and much, a lot of our counties um, are owned their public land. They're not taxable. They're part of a national forest or whatever, whatever else that may be. So we, for years, the actual inflation-adjusted dollars for education in Kentucky have been going down. Um, in property-poor districts, that is even more market because we don't have the ability to generate local revenue at the rate that other people do. Um, it also, we have additional expenses that some folks don't. We have a uh, low concentration of people um, in, in our counties. We're widely dispersed. We still have to run school buses, which means that we run buses over longer routes to pick up fewer kids. They have to ride the bus longer in order to get to school. Um, and, and all of it comes along with that. The buses we purchase have to be more, they're more expensive to buy because they have to have a heavier transmission. They go through tires because we have a lot of roads that are graveled, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so there are additional factors that are associated with that. So learning resources is uh, something that we have to acknowledge and we want to acknowledge that through a lens of equity, not equality. The funding model that Kentucky has is pretty effective at equalization of funding, but equal is not equitable. And we know as former classroom teachers that if we treated every child in our 30 seat classroom exactly the same, we are gonna miss on 29 of those kids because every person is uniquely different. They have different needs, they have different capabilities. We advocate for the development of a academic equity assessment to determine whether a district has equitable access to resources to serve the needs of their kids no matter where they are and whether every school does and eventually whether every child does. If we can have an equity test for male and female athletes through Title IX, we ought to be able to do that for access and opportunity to learning. And that's one of the considerations that we proudly put forth in this document. And equity is a significant issue. And with some children, no matter where they may live, they do not have the same socioeconomic home life. They don't have um, some things. And in some cases, they have a whole lot more. We need each of those children to be able to go through public education with the access that they need to the tools that can help make them successful when they graduate and enter the next phase, whatever that may be. Um, so, and the other big section that we look at is uh, our teachers and leaders. And how do we attract them? How do we retain them? How do we help them become the best version of themselves they can be? In that study that uh, we engaged in, um, it, a couple of things really stand out. Right now today, in the KVEC region, there are 47 unfilled certified positions. Unfilled because there are no applicants for the jobs that are certified. That's an alarming number. Now, nationally and within Kentucky, there is a growing teacher shortage. But here, that is even more alarming because in this region, teachers make a pretty good salary comparatively but we simply do not have them. And these are not hard to fill jobs. These are not physics or chemistry or language. Some of these are elementary education jobs, but there's no one there to apply. Um, we also know that certification, that it is now possible through alternate certification for people who are not, um, who did not go to traditional university to be a teacher can be certified to become teachers. They can become some of the best teachers in our systems, and some of them are incredible uh, who have been in those positions. However, when we begin to blend a staff in a school of people who went through a traditional route, of folks who are alternately certified, who had a different job before becoming a teacher, who are Teach for America folks, who come to the profession from different uh, positions, it becomes incumbent upon leadership within the school to figure out how they are going to blend that staff together, build on each of their unique assets, and help them improve. So we have to figure out how to help them improve pedagogically and within their content area. It increases the work that is necessary. That happened at a time when last year, the legislature eliminated, they, they zeroed out money for professional growth within school systems. So now we do that on our own dime as we're, we have to take away from opportunities we could offer to kids to be able to provide that uh, mandated requirement. 
the same year that professional development dollars were eliminated, the state also removed the requirement that teachers in Kentucky get a master's degree in education within a certain number of years. The jury's still out on what research will say about whether a master's degree in education creates a better teacher or not, but both of those have an impact on the way that we train our teachers. Um, and the other thing the report discovers is that teachers here on average make about 10% less doing exactly the same job for exactly the same time as teachers in other parts of the state. In some head-to-head -head comparisons, teachers here make dramatically less than they do in some different individual districts across the state. Um, we have some principals here who work 220 days a year with a principal's job, and they make less than a teacher in a different district across the state working 185 days a year. We've also found, too, as whenever we're talking about access and, uh, and opportunity, that some of our schools, with the resources that they, ca that they have, they can't afford to have uh, an art teacher or a PE teacher or even a school counselor. <coughs> You know, school school counselors in many of our schools uh, will have two or three elementary schools, and so then you know they're not available when kids really need them. But that's the best that that we can do with the resources that we have available, and even within uh, some of the larger districts that we have, uh, not all the kids have the same opportunity to teachers because of that, the, the resources. So that's another uh, thing that we found and it was quite eye-opening too. The, the third big element related to education that we looked at was assessment accountability. Um, a, a couple of things that stand out in assessment accountability um, are one, the number of changes that have occurred um, since 1990-92 in the assessment accountability system. Um, I think there are 247 tracked changes in that system since that period of time. That includes different standards that kids are measured on, different tests that are delivered, different types of tests, different uh, types of questions that are developed. Um, in one grade level, at the fourth grade level, there have been 37 changes in the way we measure children's um, skills and abilities since 1990. Um, more changes than there have been years. Um, that again means that when that happens that frequently, a leader's effort to improve the capability of the staff to teach most effectively, you have less time to do it because you have to spend time every year familiarizing those educators with what this next test is going to look like. So you can't work on how do we increase questioning skills or um, here's how you can create a more engaged classroom. You got to help people understand this is what the test looks like. Um, and and, and uh, a thing for me that also stands out in that section um, is really the, the concept that when high stakes accountability began, um, no one can argue, I cannot argue with the fact that we should be held responsible for teaching children at a high level. That is, you, I, I, will, I do believe that. However, because such a monumental emphasis is placed on those constructed assessments, we have been forced across the entire country to focus nearly 100% of our effort on achieving on that test, which has meant, I believe, a disconnection between the local school and the local community because the local school no longer can set time aside to be able to work within the community to solve problems, to address common challenges, because they are 
held accountable for that test. And I think that when we were talking about perceptions earlier and uh, many people out in the community because of not being able to have that time to get them engaged, uh, it makes them feel like that that's all we're doing in a school system is trying to get their kids to do well on a test instead of really looking out for for those kids and their future and teaching them uh, what they will need to know as they move through the, the K-12 system and then on into post-secondary. I really want to say when when we think about assessment and how it drives the work in a school um, and when we think about how do we connect school to community? I think what I know is that educators here are proving that you can do both. And they're proving it through those micro-investment grants and in a hundred other ways because we have some incredible educators here who are working within the community to address the community needs and the needs of their kids and connecting academic uh, uh, knowledge, information, and skills that will be assessed to that work. And it is amazing for me to attend one of these fire summits or to go and visit a school and see that kids are incredibly articulate. They are passionate about the work that they're doing. They can explain why being able to um, uh, raise bees is beneficial to the environment. It is a potential money maker for them. Um, and they can also explain the science behind what it is that they're doing that is on the assessment, that is a standard that they need to achieve. They can talk about that with uh, raising chickens, with hydroponics, with 3D printing, with robotics, with um, flying drones, building tiny houses, writing computer code. It's all part and parcel of a similar approach that teachers and educators are making possible across the entire region. That's bigger than the state of Connecticut. But many of those folks are coming together as a community and being able to say, we can do this and we can address this local issue. And at the same time, we can also meet and exceed the requirements that we have for those academic standards. And that is a powerful thing. Jeff Hawkins and his staff are not the only ones impressed with what is happening in Eastern Kentucky schools. Bill and Melinda Gates paid a visit to Betsy Lane High School in Floyd County, and in September 2017, Mark Zuckerberg dropped by. OVR had a report. Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg visited West Virginia and Kentucky this weekend to see some innovations in rural schools. Benny Becker reports Zuckerberg stopped in Hazard, Kentucky, to learn how schools are using new technology for personalized learning. Zuckerberg has been traveling the country, working on his New Year's resolution to speak with people in every state. On Sunday, he met with educators and students from across eastern Kentucky. Students showed Zuckerberg a tiny home that they built in a high school shop class, and he also took a moment to play a video game while standing beside the students who designed it. Mark Zuckerberg wanted to come and just learn about uh, what we were doing and how we were personalizing learning for kids in our area. That's Paul Green. He leads the Appalachian Technology Initiative at the Kentucky Valley Educational Cooperative, which is trying to expand personalized learning. Personalized learning allows students to learn at their own pace, in their own ways, and it maximizes all students' potential. Green says that several schools he works with have started using the Summit Learning Platform a new computer-based tool for personalized learning that Facebook engineers helped build. Jeff Hawkins, head of the Kentucky Valley Educational Cooperative, says he hopes that Zuckerberg's visit will spread awareness about how new tools can help rural schools. We may be able to help other people in rural communities understand how, through the use of technology, personalized learning is possible. Hawkins and Green work with schools across an area that has been hit hard by the decline of the coal industry. They say they intend to continue expanding access to new technologies and personalized learning. 
One of the most striking recommendations in the report is the call to bring schools and communities together as the key to rebuilding the region. I asked Jeff Hawkins to explain further. So for big considerations for us, we offer three big ones. Um, the first is based on what we are coming to know and coming to learn and really looking at our region and understanding that an effective school district has to be connected to a progressive community and vice versa. Um, a vibrant community needs a progressive school system. It's a synergistic relationship. And also looking at the trend data, what we have been doing in the region is not showing any proof that it has worked thus far. So we advocate for what we identify as establishing the first rural economy zone in the country. And for us, the economy is the intersection of education and economic development that focuses on increasing vitality and community quality of life. By doing that, we believe that we will be able to answer some of the questions associated with the new economy which requires that we have really smart people to be able to hold down and do the jobs that are gonna exist, some of which we don't even know yet what they are, and build into our curriculum not just the measurable, tangible, academic things that are associated with standards, but also to build into the curriculum those enduring skills that employers tell us every day they want their, their, their workers to have. They need to be good communicators. They need to be part of a team. They need to be independent thinkers. They need to look for solutions outside of what they know. And they need to have persistence and grit and not be afraid to fail because we have taken failure as a powerful learning tool out of the equation because we cannot allow our kids to fail because if they do, we don't meet the, the measure of that uh, academic assessment which is crazy because you've got to fail. Otherwise, you don't really learn that you've got to persist and you've got to figure out what the next thing is. That was a sidebar. Um, mm -hmm. So you learn more from your failures yes. sometimes than you do from your successes. So that rural edge economy zone, that needs to uh, be led by a uh, rural futuring team. Um, folks who are really trying to anticipate how we can get a multi-sector work group together in every county or in a cluster of counties to figure out how they advance that work and identify what they will be um, as they go forward into the future. We hope that we will be able to layer some of what we have been able to uh, develop and design through ARI, those micro-investments within a community um, where when people work together, they have access to a pool of money that they could use to do something, to build a walking track or uh, start their own business or work with someone else to help uh, promote their, uh, their business. Um, and also within that, that there are built-in waypoints that require recipients of those micro-investments to demonstrate what they have achieved and what they've accomplished so that we can all learn from each other. We believe if we do not put public education and learning at the center of redevelopment that we will not be successful. We, we believe, I believe strongly, our board supports that. Um, the second big consideration I mentioned earlier, uh, we advocate for the development and use of a academic equity assessment to determine whether kids are getting um, access and opportunity uh, to equitable resources that will make them able to be successful when they leave public school and join whatever the next step for them is. Um, and the third one, um, is really uh, how it, it requests that the state and all of its components boldly declare 
that in 10 years, Kentucky will be a top 10 state educationally in the United States. If we really expect that to happen, then that means that every district and every child is going to have to elevate their game. If we want to be one of the top 10 in the country, and data points to the fact that if you have an educated workforce, you will have an opportunity to have jobs and, and figure out what your future is. But if we boldly declare that we are going to be a top 10 in 10 years, then we've got to get everybody on the same page and we have to figure out how we get everyone pulling in the same harness and trace chain. The, the challenges here are not unique to other places. Um, rural looks different across the country, but we're all struggling to figure out what, um, what our future will look like and what it will be. And we have said it before uh, here, the one thing that we have become experts at is exporting those things that have value. Um, we cut trees and sent them off. We dug coal out of the ground. We uh, drill a well for gas and pipe it somewhere. But throughout that whole time, we've been sending our young, talented people to some other community to help it prosper. And we need to understand and, and hear we do have a fierce belief in our communities and the people who live here that if we put our good minds together with hard work and a commitment that we can change that trajectory and we believe that there are proof points through the work that kids have done and educators have done and other people have done that we need to share those successes because it's not a competition to see who can be best it's a competition to see how we move toward thriving rather than surviving, and that sums it up for me. Perhaps the most popular KVIC effort has been the creation of the tiny houses. We will finish our report with another story from the Ohio Valley Resource on this innovative educational. So come in, we'll come in. In the back of a parking lot in Hazard, Kentucky, Desi Bowling shows visitors around a tiny house built by students from nearby Knott County. If you look up in the loft, it has a queen-size bed. This tiny house is built on an 18-foot-long trailer bed. It has a beautiful oak interior, and there's no space wasted. There are even drawers built into the stairs. Bowling is the associate director of the Kentucky Valley Educational Cooperative. This past school year, the cooperative funded three Eastern Kentucky vocational schools to design and build tiny homes. The project gives students practical skills working as a team, and Bowling explains each of the schools can afford to build a second tiny house this year because all three structures sold at a profit. Each year these will be sold to be able to continue this project next year, and kids, as they come through, everybody will have this opportunity. Three years ago, the cooperative won a $30 million federal grant to fund innovation and personalized education in classrooms throughout eastern Kentucky. Bowling says the Tiny House Project is an effort to make sure that all of the cooperative schools offer classes that are interesting and valuable to students, even if they're not planning on going to college. One group that may not have benefited right from the beginning was the vocational school students. That rumble in the background is the sound of another student-built tiny home getting hauled away. Charles Hawkins explained that one of his sons bought it to use as temporary housing. They discovered that they had a black mold in the house, so they're going to get this to use until that's finished, and then they'll either sell this thing or take it out to the lakes or park it. Hawkins says they got interested in tiny houses from watching reality TV shows like Tiny House Nation. Trust me, tiny homes are the next big thing. Hawkins says he thinks it's important that schools focus on practical projects like building tiny homes. They need to concentrate more on vocational trade because every kid that goes to school is not destined to become a lawyer or a doctor. Somebody has got to fix the plumbing. Somebody's got to wire the house. Every student I've spoken to has said they really enjoy learning these kinds of practical skills. For instance, Charles Colin Mosley 
who worked on the drawers and stairs you heard about earlier. So I took a lot of pride in those steps. These are custom, they're real sturdy. I'm just really proud of it. Steve Richardson is a truant officer in Knott County. He says the tiny house project has made a big difference for some of the students who in previous years had missed a lot of class to the point where he'd had to make home visits. We've been able to get them involved in the learning process, whereas before we were struggling to do that. Danny Vance is the principal of Knott County's vocational school. He was also struck by how much time and care students put into building the tiny house. I was a teacher for 21 years before becoming an administrator, and I don't remember many of my students coming down on Saturday and Sunday to work on the project like they did on this one. It's just the best project I've ever been involved with. Vance says he thinks students are more invested in the project because it has real-world results. This has to be done right, and if it's not right, somebody's going to pay the price to the The vocational school in Letcher County, Kentucky, is one of the sites building a tiny house for the first time. Could you explain what's going on here? Um, yes, we had to cut a piece of OSB, and now they're just knocking it in with a piece of wood and drill a hose on the side of it. Then they're just going to screw it down, and then that's four laid. That's Haley Hart, a student in the carpentry class. She says she likes how much freedom she has in this class to come up with ideas and see them through. Because most of the time, whenever you're in other classrooms, if you have an idea, you're not allowed to do it. You have to you just stick sit, with what the teacher tells you, you to do. But in here, you, you're allowed to do anything that comes to your mind. Hart says the classes made her more confident. I wouldn't have ever imagined I could be like in the process of helping building a tiny house. One of her classmates, Matthew Collier, says he thinks the tiny house project has given all the students not just confidence, but also a new sense of hope. Every kid that we have in our classroom is real confident, and everybody has fun in this class. I mean, everybody loves this class. We do the best we can, and when we get finished, buddy, it will look like a million dollars. That was Jeff Hawkins, Desi Bowling, and Bernadette Carpenter with the Kentucky Valley Educational Cooperative. You can find out more about the call to action and download the full report at kyforward.com under the Education tab. Thanks also to Benny Becker, WMMT's first OVR reporter. Check out all the stories about building a just and diversified Appalachian economy on the web at www.makingconnectionsnews.org. And we have podcasts under that name as well. This is Mimi Pickering reporting for WMMT.